Uh, if you turn to your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, we're going to conclude our series in 1 Peter today, and uh, we're going to start at verses, uh, verse 5b today. First Peter chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 5b. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, uncertainty is something that's hard for us as human beings to deal with. Uh, psychologist Daniel Gilbert, uh, in studying uh, depression, suggests that uncertainty is often the cause of depression. He says, an uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present with nothing to do but wait. Our national gloom is real enough, but it isn't a matter of insufficient funds. It's a matter of insufficient certainty. He cites a study, a Dutch study, where subjects were, told, were put into two different groups. The one group was told that they were going to have 20 intense shocks. The other group was told that they were going to have 17 very mild shocks and three that were going to be intense, and they weren't going to know when those shocks were going to come, the intense ones. Of the two groups, they found that the second group, the one that experienced 17 mild shocks, had much faster heart rates, had sweated more, had much more anxiety than the other group because they didn't know when the shocks were going to come. In their book, Think Like a Freak, economists Stephen Levitt and Stefan Dubner state, it has long been said that the three hardest words to say in the English language are, I love you. We heartily disagree. For most people, it's much harder to say, I don't know. They point to the following experiment to prove their point. In this experiment, a bunch of children were given a story and then were asked to answer questions about the story. The story was very simple, very short. It went like this. A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive there in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Then they ask the children the following questions. What color was the car? That was pretty simple. Did they have fish and chips for lunch? That's pretty simple. Then they asked... Did they listen to music in the car on the way? Then they asked, did they drink lemonade with lunch? They found that nearly all of the children got the first two answers right. That it was a red car. That they didn't have fish and chips for lunch. But then when it came to the third and fourth questions, really they, they didn't know the answer. They were, given the information they were given, there was no way to answer the question. And yet still 78% of them answered with yes or no to those questions. It's hard to be uncertain. It's hard when we don't have the answers. But as we go through life, there's many circumstances in life 
that we experience where we don't know the answers. Specifically, when we experience suffering. Now, we know some answers. You know, we know that sometimes God maybe is testing our faith as we're dealing with suffering. We know sometimes that maybe God is allowing us to go through something so that we can be a benefit or minister to others. We know sometimes that God allows us to suffer so that He might discipline us or to reprove us, to form us more into His image. We know that sometimes God allows us to suffer so that we would draw close to Him, that we would depend on Him. So we know all those kind of answers, but as we experience suffering emotionally, I think there's this kind of resounding question in our souls where we just ask, why? Why so severe? Why is it happening to me? Why is there such a disparity in suffering? Why do sometimes people who are godless, who are just completely wicked people, it seems like everything goes well for them. And then other people who follow after the Lord experience great suffering. So we ask these questions, why? And in those moments as we're experiencing suffering, suffering will do either one of two things to us. Suffering will either humble us or it will destroy us. It will either humble us or it will destroy us. In other words, we can respond to suffering with humility or we can respond to suffering with pride. Before we get into what Peter has to say to us today, I think we need to define what humility is and what pride is. First, pride is something that at its root has, is kind of competitive. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said that a proud man will not take a girl from you because he wants her. He'll take a girl from you just to prove himself, prove that he's a better man than you. So pride is essentially competitive. It's essentially an attitude that says, I am better than fill-in-the-blank so-and-so because of so-and-so. So I'm, I'm better than other people, the other people in my class because I'm smarter than them. I'm better than the other people in the church because I do more good deeds. I'm better than my coworkers because I work harder. I'm better than my neighbor because I have a bigger house or a nicer car. So pride can take many different forms and operate at many different levels. But what, in what sense is pride competitive in relationship to suffering? Who is it that we're trying to best, in a sense, when we experience suffering and respond in pride? It might be surprising for us to think about, but, and we probably wouldn't verbalize it this way, but when we respond with pride to suffering, the one that we're trying to best is God. It's saying, in essence, I am better than God because I know better. I am better than God because I can take care of myself better than God can take care of me. And so when suffering comes, and we, if we respond pridefully, we take life into our own hands. So God isn't going to care for me. I need to care for myself. Maybe we start indulging into sin. Maybe we think to ourselves, I can't trust God to come through for me. Maybe we stop praying, stop reading the Bible, stop going to church, thinking to ourselves, well, I've done it all this time and hasn't worked, so what's the use? It's exemplified in Proverbs, or Psalms chapter 10, verse 4. It says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, seek God. All his thoughts are, there, are, there is no God. Or we might respond 
and worry. It's surprising to us that worry can be a form of pride. But when we worry, we're in essence saying, I don't trust that God can take care of me. I must take care of myself. I must take care of my own needs. I must take matters into my own hands. And the Scriptures are clear that God hates pride. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, the author of the Proverbs gives six things that the Lord hates. He says seven things that are abominations of the Lord. And the first thing on the list is haughty eyes or prideful spirit. In verse 5b of today's passage, it says that God opposes the proud. Literally, that God sets Himself up as the enemy of those who are proud. So that's the negative of how we could respond to suffering pridefully, taking matters into our own hand, choosing to become our own God rather than to trust the God who cares for us. But then what is humility? The great 19th century missionary Andrew Murray defined humility this way. It's the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. It's the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. It's allowing God to retain the throne of our hearts, the throne of our lives, and submitting to Him and His authority. And the Scriptures tell us that God looks with favor upon humility. He looks with favor upon those who are broken and call to Him. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, it says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the person that God looks with favor upon. The person who is humble. The person who is not in competition with his neighbor or with God. The humble person acknowledges that God is God. Even when we don't understand it. We understand, we humble ourselves knowing that God is in control, that He knows best. So now that we've kind of defined these terms, what pride is, what humility is, and how that relates to suffering and how we might respond to suffering, we can get into what Peter has to say to us today. So Peter first says, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He might exalt you. Now, there's some pretty clear allusions in this passage to the Exodus. Remember the story of how uh, God's people Israel were in slavery in Egypt and they were being oppressed brutally and how God delivered them from that situation, delivered them to the promised land. And what's interesting is in the ancient world, specifically in Egypt, when a pharaoh would have a great military victory and would defeat another army, he would say or others would say it was because the power of his hand allowed him to have the victory. The strength of his hand gave him the victory. And so it's interesting in this passage, and in specifically in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, that when God brings the Israelites out from Egypt, it's described as being because of his strong or his mighty hand. Exodus 13.3 says, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And so when God delivers the Israelites by His mighty hand, He is declaring that He is greater than the gods of Egypt. He's greater than the Pharaoh who claimed to be God. His hand is stronger than the hand of Pharaoh. 
And in this passage we're looking at today, we're reminded that God's hand is a mighty hand. That just like He delivered the Israelites in the Old Testament from slavery, He will one day deliver us. He says, humble yourselves. Be patient. Humble yourselves under the mighty, strong hand of God because He's going to come through for you. Because He's going to one day deliver you. Because He's going to one day exalt you just like He did with Israel. So he says, humble yourselves. And then he says, the way that we do that is by casting our anxieties or cares upon him. In other words, we don't take our matters into our own hands. We don't choose to indulge in sin, but instead we cast our burdens on the Lord. This word, the Greek word for cast, indicates a transfer. One Greek dictionary defines it as to transfer one's concerns, to to cast upon. It's, I take the things that are concerning me, that are weighing on me, that I'm tempted to try to control and try to worry about, and I give those things over to God. And Peter says the reason that you can do that is because God cares for you. Literally, the way that it could be translated in the Greek is, it is a concern to Him concerning you. It's a concern to Him concerning you. In other words... We're God's concern. God does the worrying for us. And so we can take that weight off of our shoulders. We can take the things that are weighing upon us. And we can give those things over to God. And He can do the worrying in a sense for us. Because He cares about us. We're His concern. And this idea was revolutionary in the ancient world. Now the gods of the ancient Greco-Roman world were often... Uh, kind of fickle. They were almost like human beings. Sometimes they might get angry. They might get vengeful. They could be kind. They could be good. But it was more like a give and take that you had to kind of try to procure the favor of the gods. That You had to kind of do things or give them money or do sacrifices. If you did these things, maybe they might look with favor on you. But this idea that's described in this text is completely different. It's not that we're just trying to procure God's favor. It's that God actively is concerned for His people. God actively cares for His people. One scholar, F.W. Beer, puts it this this way, Greek philosophy at its highest could formulate a doctrine of God's goodness, but could not imagine in Him an active concern for mankind. Yet Peter here calls us and his readers to freely throw our concerns upon the Lord because He cares for us. Because we're His concern. We can take off the weight of trying to be our own God and give it over to the One that controls our destiny. The One that will one day exalt us. So that's what God calls us to in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uncertainty, when we don't know the answers. It's described in Psalm 131 as the psalmist says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high to You. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So in the midst of suffering and uncertainty, we can cast our cares on our perfect Heavenly Father who cares for us, who is doing everything that He can for our good and for His glory. But then Peter goes on and he warns us. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Now, my parents used to have a cat named Priscilla. And uh, Priscilla was the consummate hunter. And uh, it seemed like almost daily she would come up and bring us uh, as it was like she'd bring it right to us, the, the, you know, a little mouse or a bird uh, or a little baby rabbit. She was always catching uh, different animals. And the reason she was so successful was she was very, very patient. And I remember being outside and playing in the backyard, and I remember she used to kind of crouch down in the middle of the yard, and she'd you know, just get all the way down. She'd sit there for hours and there would be these barn swallows that would come by and just they would come near the ground to get the bugs. And just as soon as they would get, get close enough, she would try to swat them. And she'd just sit there patiently for hours. And apparently lions are the same way or similar. They'll sometimes stalk their prey for hours because sometimes they'll hunt animals that are much faster than they are. And so what they do is they stalk them and are very patient until they find the right moment to pounce upon them, to eat them. One site I read said that lions sometimes stalk their prey during the daytime, then wait to attack them until nighttime. But there's something that's interesting about this picture that Peter gives us in this passage. He describes uh, Satan as roaring lion. But what's interesting is that Lions don't usually roar when they're attacking their prey. If there's a zebra or an antelope or whatnot, they'll stalk it. And uh, from what I read, it, it seems like sometimes they'll just kind of walk slowly, pretend like nothing is up. I think the last thing they would want to do is roar and scare the zebra or animal away. But there's a number of reasons that they do roar. They, they roar to kind of talk to other uh, lions. They roar to... Uh, kind of settle territorial disputes. But probably they, from what I read, the time that they roar the most violently is when they are encountering another strong predator, another strong animal like a hyena or a hippo or, or a crocodile. And what they'll do is they'll roar very loudly at this other animal as an attempt to intimidate them and as an attempt to get them to back down. So when we're looking at this passage, Peter is not saying, you're just a prey and Satan's a predator. He's saying, you're also a predator. He's saying, he's trying to get you. He's trying to destroy you. But stand firm in your faith. Resist him. You can fight against him. You're not weak. You're not, he's not just going to come and attack you. You need to fight back. Don't be intimidated by the thing, things that he throws against you. Because rest assured, when you're suffering, when you're in the midst of questions, uncertainty, Satan is going to come to you and he's going to get you to try to doubt your faith. He's going to try to destroy you. He's going to wait around to the right moment and saying, does God really know what's best for you? Does God really care about you? That's what he did in the beginning in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 uh, verse 5 says, you know, Satan says to Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan tells Eve, take matters into your own hands. God doesn't really care about your well-being. You know better than God. Because if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. 
It's the same trick that he's using today. He tries to get us to doubt our faith, to doubt the God who cares about us. But Peter says, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in the faith of the gospel. That God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. And if He would send His Son to die for us, would He withhold any other good thing from us? But then also Peter dispels another lie that Satan might try to throw against us. He says, knowing that that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the lies that Satan will try to throw at us is that you're the only one that's suffering. God has picked you out. Everybody else is doing fine. You know, we come to church and, you know, sometimes we put on a good face and, you know, people, other people don't know the suffering that we're going through. People don't know the struggles that we face. And so when you're experiencing suffering, maybe Satan's going to tell you, everybody else has it all together. Everybody else, they know they have this strong relationship with God and they never doubt God's word. They never doubt what God is doing. And maybe he's gonna, he tries to make us feel like we're all alone. But Peter says, stand firm. The same kinds of suffering you're experiencing are being experienced throughout the world. God is not singling you out. Satan is trying to destroy you. Satan is trying to get you to doubt God's word, to get, doubt God's plan. So he says, stand firm, and then he concludes with the promise that when, we're su- when we endure suffering, we endure persecution for a short time, he'll restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So those are the two options. Suffering will either humble us or it will destroy us. We can choose to follow God's way, humbling ourselves before our Heavenly Father, or we can choose to become our own gods, choose to take matters into our own hands following the way of the devil and thus becoming an enemy of God. Those are the two choices we have. (coughs) Pastor Greg Gilbert shares a story about how uh, he was trying to teach his young son to to swim. And uh, his son didn't like the water at all. It was hard enough to get him into the bathtub. Um, So it was quite difficult. At first, it was kind of trying to get him to walk into the stairs of the pool trying to get him to just kind of get used to the water, water kind of splash around. <coughs> and it was hard to get him to do that. Uh, eventually, he was able to get him to just kind of splash around and maybe put his lips underneath the water and blow bubbles and just kind of play a little bit. One day, he, his father decided he was going to uh, try to get him to jump into the water. So he picked him up and put him on the side of the pool and he, and he stood underneath him. He said, okay, now jump, and I'll catch you. First, the son looked kind of confused, perplexed. And then he started to get even angry. He said, no, I'm running. I'm going to mama. But his father wasn't giving up. He chased him down. He convinced him to come back to the pool, promising him some uh, treats or whatnot. So he, he's on the side of the pool, and then came the moment of truth. And he's just kind of standing there, and he's, the kid's all nervous. He's kind of shaking up and down, and, you know, all scared. His dad says, come on, I'm right here. I'll catch you. I promise. He looks kind of skeptically. And then finally, he kind of winds up and 
jumps into the pool. And so his dad caught him. Then all of a sudden, it was like, that was the best thing that could ever, that could ever happen. So his son gets out of the pool. He's like, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And so they do it over and over and over again. So then it's over, and this man and his wife started to worry that maybe his son had gotten a little bit too used to the water. So they were scared that maybe that he would try to jump in the water when they weren't there. So over the next few days, we, there they watched him around the pool. And he says, what we saw both comforted me as a parent and touched me deeply as a father. He says, never once did my little boy think about jumping into the water, and least not unless I was standing underneath him with my arms out, promising to catch him. And then he would fly. He says, you see, despite all his apparent successes, my son's trust was never in his own ability to handle the water. It was in his father and his father's promise. Come on, kiddo, jump. I promise I'll catch you. We all face difficulties in our life, and sometimes the waters that we face are difficult. The waters that we face are scary and challenging. And the choice that we have is, are we going to jump into our Father's arms, knowing that He'll catch us, knowing that He'll sustain us, or are we going to jump in and try to tread water by ourselves? Humbling or Suffering either humbles us or it destroys us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gospel that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And we thank you that you care so much about us, that we can cast our anxieties on you, that you care more about us than we care about us, that you care about every little detail of our life, and that there's nothing that you allow to happen in our life that you don't use for our good and for your glory. God, we thank you that you are that perfect heavenly Father that we can call upon, that we don't have to enter into the waters alone, that each step of the way that you there to catch us, to sustain us. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, even in the midst of difficulty, even when we don't understand what you're doing, Lord, I pray that we would trust in you, that we would humble ourselves before you. And that as we do that, we in turn would bring you glory and bring you honor through our response. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.